0: Any moment that lets you just sit back, relax, and enjoy even
1: one second of the day to yourself and taste like pumpkins, that's a moment to look forward to. The McCafe Pumpkin Spice Latte is back. Get a $2 small hotter ice for a limited time or try one of our other freshly brewed espresso drinks from iced caramel macchiatos to caramel frappes to hot mochas to every sweet treat in between. Only at McDonald's. Price and participation may vary.
2: Back to the show. I'm Stephen Goldman. This is Say It Contagious, the podcast that dwells at the intersection of sports, politics, and social justice. I am here today with my colleagues Frank Ritty, Lincoln Mitchell, and Adrian Burgos. We are recording. On a great national holiday, at least it should be. I often cut school on that day. I've often refused to work on that day, even though writing about baseball is my job. Just spend the day in the stands or in front of the TV catching up with the plethora of games for the first time after a long and lonely winter. It is a great day. Frank, how has opening day been for you so far?
3: Opening day for me has been uneventful insofar as I've been working uh, and not doing baseball related things today. So this is my introduction to opening day here in the afternoon. Uh, But I am I'm kind of excited, more excited about opening day than I have been in a long time. I think, you know, one of the great things about our collaboration is that it's really encouraged me to be plugged into baseball more than I have, you know, certainly before last year. I mean, it's a game I love, but I've sort of forfeited watching it on TV you know, for the last few years. So now that we've been doing this great work, you know, I'm, I'm excited about the Padres and uh, Fernando Tatis. I'm excited about Francisco Lindor's signing with the New York Mets, which just broke uh, as news today. And so I'm interested to see, you know, what happens on the field and, as always, how this will, uh, you know, sort of spill over and be affected by what's happening off the field.
2: Adrian, how are you doing on this great secular national holiday?
0: It's like Christmas all over again, you know? No, I
2: said it was secular. <laughs> so was Christmas.
0: You eating, Ch-
1: you eating Chinese
2: food today, Andrew? Actually, I had Korean.
1: There you go. <laughs> nice. And actually,
0: Korean food, you don't feel um, hungry after an hour. Um, anyway.
2: old jo- That joke is so old it has whiskers. Yes, indeed.
0: Um, no, opening day is good so far. It, it's It's so different than last year, right? When in the middle of COVID, baseball had to shut down and then restart and we don't know what kind of season it was going to be. You know, I think we're in a different moment right now. And kind of excited to have baseball back and to see Gary Sanchez doing things he hasn't done in years. (laughs) An infield hit and a home run in the same game. Come on. Who can't be excited about that as a Yankees fan? As
2: as I said earlier, an infield hit by Gary Sanchez, I assume someone fell down or possibly had a fainting spell due to low blood sugar or something. <laughs> Why just, are
1: we picking on Gary Sanchez? Well, <laughs>
0: it's like easy,
2: Lincoln. I mean, I mean so here, here's the thing about Gary Sanchez, for people who don't know. Gary Sanchez, this incredibly heralded Yankees catching prospect, not a great glove back there, but man, his bat is going to make up for that. And for the first, what, couple of years, it seems like it's going to. But over the last three years, he has progressively gotten worse and worse to the point that... During the playoffs last year, he was benched in favor of the Goodfield no-hit Kyle Higashioka. And I think I just utterly destroyed his name. But Higashioka... Ex-
1: have a DH that signed through the year 2073, right? Right, so you Harvest can't... Uh,
2: right, and they keep finding <laughs> other guys to play first base. But here's the thing. He plays in this incredibly friendly park. So even though superficially there are some redeeming numbers, including power, in his... The, the back of his baseball card, if you look at the home road splits, Yankee Stadium is the only thing that has kept him off the non-tender pile because, and I, I don't have this in front of me, but if you look at it, all his hitting is in the Bronx, and on the road, I I, I don't think I'm exaggerating if I say over the last three years he's hit something like 180 with a 250 on base and maybe a 400 slugging percentage.
1: I think if he had 180 on the road last year that'd have been better than his batting average at home. It might have been. That's right. i but, but the thing that bothers me about Gary Sanchez, although I, and I am rooting for him, is that the Yankees went into the season knowing that they didn't exactly have mid-career Johnny Bench behind the plate, right? And yet no effort to pick up an alternative no effort to get anything other than your kind of standard big league backup good field no hit catcher and it's very odd to me that the Yankees that spend you know so much money will you know it's it's like spending an enormous amount of money on 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 a meal and not bothering to spring for you know ketchup for the french fries or something I mean just get spend a little bit of money and get a major league bench there are there are teams that will not that will be out of the playoff race by August first and have better benches than the Yankees right now.
0: Well, here, here's the thing and that no one
1: asked me and, how
3: my opening day was going.
2: I, I was well, going to
3: ask you just a minute, yeah. but you just started opining without even uh, waiting for the question. But here's the thing: I heard on
0: the on the broadcast, and Craig would love this if he was with us just yet. Um, Gary Sanchez is in the best shape of his life. <laughs>
3: <laughs> we should expect good things from Gary. Let's let's predict the, uh, Let's do our, our predictions. and uh, Predict a good year for Gary Sanchez. Why not? Oh, no. He's got 81 games in Yankee Stadium that'll help. I think Sanchez
1: is a good hitter. I don't know that. I don't know that he's a good. You know, he's like, it's that gray area where he's not. He's not a good enough hitter to be a full-time DH or first baseman, and he may no longer be a good enough catcher to be a catcher, and that that's that's a challenge. So it's kind of a twist in between for, for old Gary Sanchez. All
2: right, I've got before we we get to the portentous description of Lincoln's opening day, I do have the splits in front of me. Over the last three years, he has hit. 221, 318, 489 at home, which is playable, particularly if you have a, a good glove back there. I mean, that's a lot of power, even with the low batting average. But on the road, 178, 273, 416, and, this and last that three years. over the three years, yeah. yes. So, I mean, there, there's just no pitch that he won't swing at, and and he's still young, and I I root for him too because you don't want to see anyone in there mid to late twenties, suddenly fall apart and not have a career anymore. We we've seen that happen in the, in the past, but you're, you're right, Lincoln, that the, the Yankees decided to bet on the high upside in, in a recovery. They, I guess, had confidence in the player and in their ability to coach him out of this, at least insofar as opening day and his newfound speed as described by Adrian, (laughs) that that has paid off. So Lincoln, since, since you have uh, given us the coming attractions on this, how has your opening day been so far?
1: It's opening day. Now my, my opening day has been – it's been good. I mean, it is nice that the season is finally starting. I was actually encouraged that I'm not yet qualified to buy tickets for Yankee Stadium because of my, my vaccine status isn't there yet, which means at least on some level they're taking this uh, seriously. I got four innings into the uh, – listening to the Yankee game on the radio before I started thinking that I knew less about baseball than when I started, which often happens when I listen to those announcers. But in general it's good. I mean I've enjoyed kind of checking in with my baseball fan friends and wishing everyone a happy opening day and it's you know the Giants are tied into for the Dodgers for first place. That's very exciting. <laughs> so you know it's it's, a, it's nice. It's, it is it is definitely one of those things that really signals the beginning of spring and this spring has real meaning, more meaning. I mean I'm somebody who hates cold weather in the winter, but this spring has more meaning because maybe we're coming out of this this COVID mess and this uh, dalliance with authoritarianism, I still think we're in the middle of the latter, but
3: at least it's not as bad as it was, you know, 10 months. Certainly, no. Th- I mean, this is this is a much better April in New York City than exactly. last April. Absolutely. But are we
2: in the middle of both still? Putting aside the authoritarianism for a minute, just for, for a minute, the v- pandemic is still raging in a lot of places. Here in the Northeast, it's still very bad. Not everyone can get vaccinated who needs to get vaccinated, whereas other parts of the country have opened it up to the vast majority of people or even ages 16 and up. We can't quite get there out in this part of the world. And in places like Michigan, the Times today had a story about Michigan, where Michigan is still incredibly underwater, I think in part because of unique factors to that state in terms of of population density, in terms of the economic profile of the people who are being afflicted and the geographic profile. There, there are simple issues of getting people connected to the vaccines. And so, no, we're not done and we are risking what?
1: No, but I'm not saying we're done, Steve. I'm not saying we're done and we're okay. losing more people a day. If we were losing the numbers of people that we're losing now back in May and June of last year, we'd be concerned. I mean, I mean, you know, these numbers are higher than they were in the middle of last summer. But for unlike, say, three or four months ago, there is a sense that the light at the end of the tunnel may not be an oncoming train. And, and and during last year, you always felt that it was just what more bizarre, outrageous piece of information is coming at us? What more kind of devastating setback are we facing? And And with all of the problems, I think more than in the past, the curve is in the right direction. We can begin to see a post-pandemic time now. To the recovery from the pandemic, it's not like okay, seventy-five percent of us got our shot. September first, we're good to go. The country's all right. I mean, that's that's a whole different ball game. And obviously, you know, the free riders who are cavalierly killing people by not wearing masks, and not getting their vaccines, you know, that's that that's that's troubling as well. But and, and I'm not saying the, the pandemic is over, but we are in a different place than we were last opening day, the, the real opening day, the original opening day or the actual opening day, or even last fall.
2: Can I ask you guys, and Lincoln alluded to this before about not being able to buy tickets for the Yankee game, this is an interesting kind of social moment we're at too, uh, just on a, on a personal level, but this goes to attending baseball games as well. So you all have families, And uh, like me, and I received my second shot last Friday. So as of 10 days later, which would be this coming Monday, I'm free to move about if I want to. And according to the latest CDC information, people who have been vaccinated cannot transmit the disease, or at least it's very unlikely. Now, it it doesn't mean you're bulletproof. You could still get it if the thing is 90 percent efficacious. You know, one person somewhere is still going to get it, but they will not become ill. They should not be hospitalized. They should not. Be a fatality. I mean, given the long haul stuff, who knows? You don't want it, but still, I could get lunch in the right situation with any of you guys, and I hope we do because we haven't gotten to do that throughout this whole this whole sad and contagious experience. But what's interesting for me, just on a personal basis, and I think this would be valuable for people who are listening, and I'm curious how you approach this. Is my wife is not eligible? It turns out that my pre existing conditions were an advantage to me in this situation in this one way. My son who is 15 he will turn 16 this summer is not yet available or eligible so i can go to lunch as long as i leave my family behind and assuming that you guys are in that intermediate position too i wonder how you plan to handle that
1: my wife is is about a month about a month behind me with regards to the vaccine so she will be getting her second dose you know in, in a few weeks and my kids are actually in states where they will be able to get the vaccine because the laws are different. Uh, and, and, and my view is that, you know, there's a balance here. You should wear masks when you go in public. I mean, that's still the recommendation. There's still no reason not yes. to. And, and the, to me, a mask is such a minimally invasive thing that, if it's, that even if you're dealing with very low odds, why not just make everyone safer and put everyone's mind at ease? Also importantly, when you go outside, you don't have a big V on your forehead that stands for vaccinated. So people don't know. So keep everyone comfortable and keep wearing your damn mask. On the other hand, you know, it happens that we're going into summer. So don't have to make decisions about indoor venues so so immediately. But if the vaccine is a vaccine and the data is telling us that, and if and if the experts, can, you know, I, I would feel comfortable going to a Yankees game. I would feel comfortable eating outdoors in a restaurant in a way that I did not before I had the vaccine. I was really on the cautious side. You know, my mother is flying to uh, New York from California when she's course vaccinated. And when she gets here, like, we'll sit in my house without masks on. You know, we'll eat together, have a meal inside. So I'm feeling, you know, and, and, and I wouldn't do that if I didn't think that both the, the recommendations and the data said that it was okay.
0: Yeah, in my case, my uh, second shot, second dose will be uh, April 15th. So in two weeks and, but I'm right now the only one eligible in my uh, household to, uh, to get the shot. So, you know we're we're still proceeding cautiously um the university here at uh at illinois has been trying you know to be smart about how we approach this There's, we we were fortunate that we can have testing uh it's been extended to our entire household if you're a member of the faculty or the staff at the university of illinois this community as a whole has a community that you know you wear your mask you Look out for others in that text. So been very fortunate, but also very cautious. Um, You know, we don't know fully these long haul impacts of uh, COVID. And, you know, it's something to think, although the Boston Red Sox game was uh, postponed today, that they were going to have Eduardo Rodriguez, who missed all of last season because of COVID. And they were going to have him pitch opening day and yeah you know, i was encouraged to see that he's back on the mound and also wondering like what are some of these long haul um impacts of covid and that's you know that's optimistically cautious about the road ahead but the cause for optimism is greater when you have scientists leading the policy making on this now versus just the uh gumption and unction of uh of politicians who don't need the science.
3: At least at the federal level, right? Yeah, I mean, federal which, level, yeah. which is yeah, yeah. I mean, and <clears throat> you know, being in New York State, notwithstanding all the problems that our beloved governor, the, the former hero, uh, Andrew Cuomo, <laughs> who I always call Mario Cuomo because I'm old enough to remember Mario, um, uh, you know, this is a state that, you know, um, that hasn't stood in opposition to what, uh, you know, is in line with, uh, you know, what we would want from our policy for the most part. You know, yeah, I'm like, I'm like the rest of you, I think, you know, cautiously optimistic. You know, I live in New York City, so I, I'm going to proceed cautiously as I, as I have. I'm privileged enough to work from home. You know, and that will continue for the time being. And I think that, you know, I'm not in a rush to eat indoors, you know, at a restaurant. That's fine. You know, I'm one of those people who, you know, wasn't wild about, you know, overpriced New York restaurants anyway. Uh, So, and I have a kitchen and I cook and that's, you know, so that's fine. So, you know, this, so so much of the discussion in New York is about restaurants. The most essential aspect of the New York economy, if you read the New York Times, it seems like throughout this pandemic. So, you know, uh, yeah, I, I'm optimistic that I can see a game, you know, outdoors uh, this summer. That'd be nice. That's, I, I usually don't go to games until July anyway. It's too cold to go to a Yankee game or a Met game in, in April or May anyway. And, uh, you know, I, I, I'm envisioning that. I'm dreading getting on a plane. I'm not looking forward to that. I didn't like flying before. Right. The pandemic, because I don't fly in first class. I'm in with the rest of the world in the sardine section. <laughs> so I'm not looking forward to that. Uh, but uh, but I am looking forward to, to some more outdoor social activities and even some indoors in the right conditions.
2: So the other big baseball news happening besides the kickoff to the whole season, am I mixing metaphors there Two sports kickoff baseball? <laughs> the, <laughs> yes, uh, <yeah. laughs> I guess the first pitch of the season would be the, the better way to, to do it is that Met shortstop, I guess we can say that now, it still felt sort of like he was a vestigial Cleveland shortstop who was just visiting, but now for virtually forever, or the next 11 years, this season plus 10 more, Francisco Lindor and owner Steve Cohen finally settled their contract extension, and Lindor is the proud new owner of a $341 million contract. And at the very least... This does represent a firm departure from the Wilponian, to coin a word, way of doing things (laughs) in Queens for the last couple of decades. So how do you guys feel about the Francisco Lindor contract? Are you excited? Do you think that's a good investment for the Mets? How about you first, Frank?
3: I do think it's a good investment. And I'm, you know, I don't have a team. You know, I, I kind of follow... You know storylines, and this is one storyline I'm I'm absolutely interested. Um, you know, I read Devin Gordon's new book on uh, on the on the agonies of being a Mets fan. It's a wonderful book called "It's So Many Ways to Lose," and he writes really compellingly about the Mets in the Omar era, in particular the the team that lost that horrible uh, NLC lost NLC, NLCs losses to, to St. Louis Cardinals in 2006. And what was so striking about that team that Omar Minari put together is that it had so many of these lead Latino stars, right? And so I see Lindor as another one of those kinds of figures that will make the Mets really interesting. And so, you know, he's 27. He, he, he's certainly not at the end of his career. I mean, last year you have to write off. I mean, it's hard to assess somebody in 2020 with that, the kind of regular season that, that happened last year. And I think this is going to give New York fans, the Met fans, something to be excited about. And God bless Steve Cohen, as far as I'm concerned. You know, he was, uh, you know, uh, negotiating on Twitter, uh, as <laughs> Craig kept pointing out in his uh, daily newsletters. But in the end of the day, he he signed them. And, uh, and it's a signal to the fans that he's serious about trying to, to improve the team. And I think that's good.
2: You know, Lindor was born in Puerto Rico, went to high school in, in Florida, but was from mm-hmm. was born in Puerto Rico. And. It occurs to me that there is—it's it's a little late to exactly dovetail with this, but the despicable way that Puerto Rico was treated— by the previous presidential administration after the national disasters that that, or natural, excuse me, disasters that they underwent, they were national disasters, too, because and this is the point that I was trying to make, Puerto Rico is part of the United States of America. The people who reside there are American citizens. But it seems like at least half of the political spectrum likes to be in denial about that. And I hope that this will serve as, as at least a small wake up call in that regard, that one of the best and most highly compensated players in baseball in one of the game's largest markets hails from that place. And and we should start treating it as if it were part of the country.
0: Well, the other part to that, Stephen, is, so yeah, Francisco Lindor's from Caguas, Puerto Rico, which is actually the same place that Alex Cora and his family Mm -hmm. is from. Mm -hmm. And Lindor, uh, as a teenager, moved to Florida, to Orlando area, another place. When you said half, I thought you were going to Just wow us with your knowledge knowing that like half the Puerto Ricans, people of Puerto Rican descent actually live live in Orlando. Out off the island, and (laughs) so many of them live in Orlando and Florida. But yeah, it is so important, I think, for the Mets to have a player of Francisco Lindor's character. Um, he is he's Mr. Smiles, he was the face of the All-Star game when it was in Cleveland, but he's also a guy who really very much is in the spirit of someone like Roberto Clemente. He gives back. He is involved in in philanthropic activities and he is someone who went back to Puerto Rico to help out after the hurricane. So, yeah, you know, there is a story here to have him be part of the Mets is a great story because he's should help elevate
3: that whole team on and off the field. And just real quick I have to say I, you know, Again, uh, Gordon makes this point about that Minaya-era Mets. You know, what was so interesting about that team, I even mean, though they never won a championship, is that, you know, they, they sort of represented the new Queens, you know. And, you know, we know Queens and Corona, which is right near the stadium there, near the water Airport, heavily immigrant communities in Queens. This is not the Queens of, of yesteryear. that was more white and white-ethnic and Jewish. And so, it, you know, it's, be, I'm, I'm hoping the Mets sort of understand how Queens has suffered in particular, this bad pandemic and, and maybe this is asking too much of the Mets, you know, and, and even the Lindor, but it would be nice to see them, you know, uphold the surrounding community in their, in their pregame activities and in their off the field activities. That would be nice. I
2: think You know, one thing that in retrospect is, is at least apparent to me now, and this is how little we know is Mania made a lot of bad deals, a lot, uh, at least it seemed that he did during that Mets period. But I think it was less apparent back then, just how meddlesome the Wilpons were and so now I'm not really sure whether Minaya was was waging a a holding action against his, his ownership or he really did have ownership of some himself of some of those misjudgments.
1: You know, there's another side of this signing and and I think it's good that Lindor got this contract. I think it's particularly good that he got it uh, with the Mets because it's it's good for baseball that the Mets have that kind of a marquee player. But another side of this story, another way to report the story is that huge market team takes major free agent off the market with a huge contract now that's not particularly my opinion but that is the way the story uh will be reported in a lot of places or will be you know the the indians couldn't keep couldn't afford to keep them the oakland a's would never be in the running for a player like this the royals the pirates and you know we all know that that narrative but but this goes to me to a kind of a, a more interesting question in my mind about the mets which is that the mets have have created this story about themselves as you know, like you said about the the book, right? The kind of the, the, the just the losing and the bad teams, but and, and and additionally losing in some obviously exciting and dramatic ways, and also winning in some exciting and dramatic ways. But to fans in most markets, the Mets are a big market team that spend a lot of money in and around the play, or in and around the playoffs most years, and don't always make wise uh, decisions. But and so that that's another context in which to see. The, the Lindor signing. Not that I'm, a, I mean, my view is that all of these owners are rich. They can all afford it. And if they don't want to compete for to pay people, they shouldn't own baseball teams. And it's not my money. But, but the, the, I, I want to be careful about portraying the Mets as this kind of, you know, second tier team with no resources. Yeah, they're a rich team in New York with a rich owner who's finally doing the right thing.
3: Yeah, no, absolutely. You're, you're exactly right. I mean, uh, they're, they're not a small market team, whatever that is. Uh, the, the Mets are not it. Uh, they were owned by, uh, the Wilpons who mismanaged that franchise for a long time, you know, and mismanaged uh, their own money for a and long mismanaged time. Their own money. That's exactly right. with the Madoff's uh, right. situation. Sure. I want
2: to push back on one thing though, that that Lincoln, you seem to buy into Paul Dolan's narrative that Cleveland couldn't afford Lindor. We don't know that. <laughs> no, that's right. And just, just about a week ago, Dolan said, Oh, the team loses money every year. Bull. First of all, the, the franchise. Uh, values no, I'm not values buying into up. that
1: narrative. Yeah. I'm not buying into that narrative, but what I, I, what I, I am just—I'm really making a specific point about the Mets, right? Which is—it's there is this there. There are a few like, like, for example, let's take the Yankees as a counterexample. Yankees fans know that everyone else, all the other fans of other teams, hate the Yankees, right? They know that every team understand, every fans of other teams understand the Yankees as like the bully on the block, the evil empire, all of that, and they kind of embrace that, uh, you know, that image. Uh, the Yankee fans do. And, and, and most teams, you know, I think I suspect that most te- most fans of the Oakland A's understand that the rest of baseball doesn't always pay a lot of attention to the Oakland A's, right? Or, or you can, all these other teams. But there is this just notable discrepancy between the story the Mets Mets universe to use an odd phrase tells about tells itself and the way the rest of baseball fans see the Mets. That's the point I'm making. I, I certainly agree. We don't know, as far as I can see, any team. You don't get to buy a baseball team. This isn't the 1940s, right? Where some team is owned by some family business that's owned it for 30 years and is really running out of money. This isn't that anymore. Every team can afford these free agents.
2: Yeah, I mean, sell it. If, right. if you yeah. really are suffering, yeah. sell it. Yeah, correct. Right. Mm-hmm. Home,
3: it looks a little different for everyone. For some, it's a rustic cabin. For others, a big city high-rise. And for others, it's renting a tiny studio that said it had laundry in the building, but the dryer's always broken. And don't get me started on the gym. That's not a gym. It's an elliptical machine and a boiler room. And let's not even discuss parking. But no matter where you call home, GEICO makes it easy to bundle and save on renters and car insurance. Easier than getting your landlord to return your calls. You can't hide forever, Leonard. Welcome back to the quickest podcast ever. Brought to you by Kohl's. Today's topic, fall style.
2: Wait, wasn't it just June? Right? So I went to Kohl's. Of course he did. I got a cute Kara Santana for Nine West sweater for 25% off and a great pair of Vans. Love Vans. And saved 25% on a champion hoodie for my husband. Ooh, sounds cozy. You should go. You'll get 15% off or 15, 20, or even 30% off with a Kohl's card. BRB. Select
1: styles. Offers end September 26th. Champion coupons do not apply. Some exclusions apply. See store for details.
3: this is the line that they always peddle, right? I mean, all the time, right? Um, And that's why this signing is interesting because I guess, you know, probably because he just bought the franchise, Cohen. You know, like letting him sit there all year would be a mistake from a PR standpoint, right? This at least, you know, generates some excitement and also some good press in light of what happened with the Jared Porter situation and, you know, the sexual harassment history that's in that organization. It's even in, in Cohen's own career. So, you know, from a PR standpoint, I suppose this is a good move for them, even though those issues are still... Still ongoing. Well, and
0: let, not that you already said, don't forget Mickey Calloway's uh, stint as the manager in there as well. Yeah.
3: Yes,
2: right. And I, I mean, supposedly they're they've hired an outside law firm to uh, not supposedly they have hired an outside law firm to examine their conduct in that, which is probably just a a whitewash in the making. But it it is, and and I believe our our uh, absent pal Craig Calcaterra wrote about this too that the general gist of such investigation, specifically in this case, would be to further distance the organization from the prior ownership. Which is a good move.
3: (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you know, I mean, the the Wilpon elicited a lot of um, anger from the fan base uh, with good reason. You know, uh, I mean, Jeff Wilpon, I I guess, was very lucky that uh, he bought the franchise with uh, Doubleday in 1980. Uh, And they made some good moves back then. But then over time, it just was a a train wreck there in in Flushing.
2: You know, I have a question about this, and and this goes to the kind of crossover between baseball and the rest of the political world that we frequently talk about on this program. Whenever some social issue that requires money, say single payer health care, for example, comes up. Or infrastructure, which it is finally infrastructure week here in the United States after being (laughs) teased that about that for at least four years. It really is. We're really trying to do that. And what some group of politicians, sometimes Democrats, but more often Republicans, they will say, oh, no, we can't afford that. It's too expensive. But, you know, who is we? Because it's not their money. Right. It's it's our money. And it exists on a, on a time frame that is lo- longer than any single human lifetime.
1: And, and when a politician says we can't afford th- the correct answer, th- what they're really saying is I don't want this. Right. And, right. and we should understand it as that we, you know, we, the Republican party, we don't want to put money into schools because we don't want good schools. I mean, it's, you know, hold people accountable. Uh, and, and, and because I want my rich friends to be richer. Right. Because I don't want to, I mean, there was, there was a, um, for example, if you, Jeff Bezos, is worth something—I mean, some enormous amount of money—where if you stripped his fortune only to fifty billion dollars, and let me repeat that, only to fifty billion dollars, <laughs> you would pay a substantial chunk, like fifteen, twenty percent, of the COVID relief bill. Right now, now they're, they're not going to strip Jeff Bezos's fortune to fifty billion dollars. If I, I would support any policy that did, because have one individual having. You know, even $1 billion in my mind is, is uh, the reflection of a, of a sick uh, culture. But we are told over and over again, even that kind of a wealth tax wouldn't do anything. Well, of course it would. Right. The money is there. And, and so, so I think the similarity is, is, is right. I mean, you know, when, when a team says we can't afford so so, what they really mean is we have a, di- a different business model, which is we get close to the playoffs every few years. We have another, we're not going to spend a lot of money on payroll. We'll find other ways to fill enough seats and take advantage of the television contracts and that kind of thing.
3: And dip into these other investments, which is what Craig Kater has been writing about, right? I mean, one thing you have noticed, and not just in Major League Baseball, but even in the NFL and other franchises, you know, they, they figured out that they don't have to put a winning team on the field to make a lot of money, you know, and they can, you know, generate revenue in a variety of ways. And, you know, what we're seeing in the case of, uh, some of these teams like the Cubs and the Padres and others, you know, they're dipping into these, you know, in the, in the Braves case uh, in Cobb County as they're using these mixed development real estate schemes to generate money, mm-hmm. you know, uh, and, and generate enough excitement with a new ballpark, which gets built every 10 years, it seems like, uh, in the case of the Texas Rangers and places like that. And that generates excitement and revenue, or at least imagine revenue, and that's been, as, as opposed to putting a team on the field that's a winning team, like even the Yankees, you know, it's going to be interesting to see. You know, do they adhere to the Steinbrenner legacy of putting the best team the money can buy on the field? I mean, I I guess they did that when they signed Garrett Cole. But, you know, I don't have the impression that that's the mentality that reigns in the Bronx these days. You know, even though they have big high price, high price free agents, but they're not not as they have not been as aggressive as they they were in in previous years. Well,
2: Frank, you know this better than anybody, right? That the the Rangers especially were a a real estate dodge pretty much from start to end. And particularly (laughs) in the in the George W. Bush years. It really was yeah. a front for building a ballpark and, and and increasing the value of a certain set of land, not about winning anything.
1: But but you know, That's with right. I That's mean nice. the exactly Yankees right. in particular, I mean I think we should differentiate between winning the World Series, which only one team can do, right? Um and and whereas I can point to on and off the field decisions for any team that was around the playoffs and didn't make it over the last few years, you know, the Yankees have haven't I'm not sure that you know, they could have ball bounced a different way a couple of times. They could have won one of those World Series. But there's a difference between winning the World Series as a goal and putting and trying to put a quality product on the field as a goal. And and what bothers me is not when a team doesn't win the World Series, but when they don't seem to be trying to put a quality product on the field, because then, as as you pointed out, they're running the ball team as kind of a side part of a larger business. And as a baseball fan, that's that doesn't appeal to me at all. I I get the business logic of that. I'm not a a business person in that sense. So I don't really wouldn't understand how to do that and wouldn't be interested in doing that. But there's a certain logic to that. And, and, but the problem is when you have more than one or two teams that aren't putting a a quality product on the field, let's be clear for most of baseball history, many teams did not put quality products on the field, right? Try being a Chicago white Sox fan for, you know, the middle part of the 20th century, for example, or the, you know, the Washington centers or something, but it's it's not – it it makes the game worse for everybody. So the Yankees – you know, I think the Yankees figure if we're around the playoffs every year and we keep telling this bizarre story that, you know, we're trying to win the World Series every year, that's the goal, but then when we don't, it's okay. You know, I think they figure they can make that work, but that's better than saying, well, we're just going to develop real estate and put a third-grade team on the field, which as far as I can see, some teams
3: are doing. Even though that's, that, that, that's, not, that's not what they're saying. but that's Yeah, what they're in, doing, not what they're saying. Doing. Yeah, right. no –
2: but yep. not the Mets, not yet.
3: Not the Mets. We'll see. It's going to be interesting. i, I got to make my way out to Flushing <laughs> this summer. It's a nice bike ride. We could, I'll we the could, seven train I, we could ride our out bikes there. out
1: there. You know, that way don't have to take the train.
3: You know, I'm, I'm willing to do that. I've done a fair yeah. amount of bike riding just since the pandemic. I, I might be in shape to to do that over the course of several days. It's not
1: that bad, and and, and if the weather's nice, there's lots of good restaurants <laughs> stopping the way.
2: I don't know about biking out to Willett's Point. Some of those potholes are bicycle sized. You'd be going on a Jules Verne ride to the center of the Earth. Queens is a very.
0: Oh, yes, yes, <laughs> Where'd you go? He just fell in a pothole. Where'd you go? <laughs> <laughs> hey, I wanted to circle back a little bit to when we we're talking about infrastructure and, you know, the investment in real estate. And this is about the ways in which um, ballparks are being, in fact, and and, and the hotels, like the White, the, not the White Sox, the Cubs, the whole complex are developing around Wrigley with the brand new hotel and everything, you know, Taxpayer dollars are being used to prop up those things, but highways are not being built or rebuilt. Bridges are not being redone. And that's when, Frank, when you ask that question or you raised the question about who this we is, it's like, that, as, as Lincoln was saying, politicians are saying, yeah, we don't want this. But many of us people want to be able to feel safe when you're going over a, a 75-year-old bridge as you're crossing from one place in town and other and this shows the divide between you know you again you see wrigleyville and the nice hotel and the, everything that's being redeveloped and you drive across town and you see decaying schools in chicago the money's going somewhere that's exactly right you know having been to atlanta and seeing the beautiful complex they have a concert hall slash movie theater there they, they have restaurants right around the ballpark. The development is, is super nice. It's a great place to hang out if you got money, if you have the time, and if you're wearing a mask. Um, maybe not so much they require it there in Georgia, but it also makes you think about what else is going on in Georgia, which is the All-Star Game is supposed to be there this year. And what is MLB going to do? I mean, we talked about it previously on this podcast about all the Black Lives Matter protests of and and not just protests, but the actions that were taken last year to show that MLB lines up with Black Lives Matter. Well, it's right there in Georgia right now with the voting restriction laws are being put into place that most directly affect the African-American community. What is MLB going to do with the All-Star game this year? They should move it.
2: They should. Yes, you're back. We want to know what Queens is before we move on.
1: <laughs>
0: you
2: portentously said Queens is.
1: Oh, is this a good? I was going to say
0: Queens it's a good is. bike riding borough. Place where people disappear. No. <laughs> <laughs>
1: It is. Clearly. Lots of good bike paths, lots of places to eat. I mean,
2: it's, it's where your car is. disappears, too. I yeah. know that if it happens to.
3: Well, that's certainly the case. That was certainly the case back in the day when we used to see games uh, in the late 70s. There would be quite a few auto thefts there in the parking lot and the surrounding junkyards. Uh, my father can attest to that. Yeah, I had
2: a car stolen at Yankee Stadium on Old Timer's right. Day, 1988, wow. watched uh, Mickey Mantle and Joe DiMaggio and then tried to leave and could not get back to New Jersey, at least not not very easily. The thing, Adrian, is that the the Black Lives Matter thing it it seemed performative, and I was really struck by how that stencil, the Black Lives Matter stencil, was on the back of the mound for what seemed like a day, and then in very short order was replaced by Lumber Liquidator or one of the usual advertisers. Because you know that that's that's money that that you know you can't spend Black mm-hmm. Lives Matter, but you sure can spend Lumber Liquidators, and so it, it seemed like that commitment was only skin deep.
3: In the case of Major League Baseball, absolutely. You know, uh, I mean, I think the NBA, WNBA is a little different, but that, that's a, that's exactly right. And, and uh, you know, I think what's striking about what's happening now with what's unfolded in Georgia is that other corporate interests are at least rhetorically speaking out against the, the recent passage of the voter suppression um, laws in Georgia, right? So Delta, Coca-Cola, again, rhetorical, they had to be pushed to do it, but they're doing it, uh, obviously. Obviously, MLB Players Union, you know, has said they're open to moving the game. Um, so it is, it is clear that other corporate interests are, are trying to pressure, you know, uh, for the change of the law. And then MLB is going to have to do something. And, this, and it's not like there's no precedent for this. I mean, right. the NFL moved the Super Bowl out of Arizona way back in the early 90s. And give yeah, you know, I mean, there's plenty of precedent for taking action. I mean, even the stuff in North Carolina around the bathrooms and transgender rights and things like that. Uh, so then, it's not like this is way out of bounds here. The United this States is something that's the well within the, the the you know the kind of the sphere of of activity that corporate interests have used when laws are clearly passed that are clearly designed to disfranchise people.
2: We should also acknowledge that as we are recording this, as opening day is happening, we just alluded to Black Lives Matter, and one of the reasons that. Black Lives Matter saw a resurgence almost a year ago at this time during the summer of 2020 was because of the murder of George Floyd. I say murder presumptively because we don't know what the outcome of the trial of the excommunicated officer Derek Chauvin is going to be, but that is going on right now. We know it was
1: a murder. Well, yeah, we we objectively know. know. We
2: know it was a murder. We don't know if judicially it's a murder because justice is not always guaranteed in these cases. I was struck by the strange coincidence. I don't know if you guys saw this the, the other day, but this week on PBS, they did an American Experience installment about the blinding of Isaiah Woodward. I believe I have his name right. In South Carolina in the 1940s, directly after the war, one of the most horrific examples of police brutality against a person of color in the short of murder anyway in the history of the country, it seemed a very propitious bit of timing that that was airing at the same time as the Chauvin trial. And the police officer in that case got off as well. The Justice Department tanked the case, even though Harry Truman pushed them to to bring it. One of those examples of the deep state at work, which is actually true as opposed to most of... Donald Trump's <laughs> complaints about that it really it really was It's that people talk about FDR not rescuing the Jews. It's a similar thing. I was curious if you guys have been following the trial and if you have any impressions of it so far, Lincoln, do you want to lead off
1: well i've not I've been following it by reading about it. I haven't been watching it, and you know because of the role that the law and legal culture plays in the United States, trials become focal points here in very significant ways. And I think it is worth stressing again, the question here is not what happened. We all know what happened. We all know that Derek Chauvin murdered George Floyd. And if that is not what is found in the the trial, then that is a failure of our judicial system. And we've had too many of those failures for too long. And the results are when people lose confidence in the judicial system or never have it, then they turn to other, very rationally turn to other means. And we saw this, we've seen this over and over again in American history. So this is a key moment. And, you know, it, the the jury's going to decide what the jury's going to decide, but pretty clear to me what happened. And it's pretty clear to me that none of the evidence uh, presented by the defense really is, is particularly compelling.
3: Yeah. And yeah, I am. I, um, I'm not following the trial closely yet, um, because as we've already alluded to the long history of um, of the justice system uh, falling short and, and failing miserably every single time when it comes to the question of police violence against black people um, throughout the entire the history of this country. So, you know, I, 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 you know, I am not following it because, to be honest, I, it's a risk of sounding like a younger person. I, I can't deal with the trauma of going through the whole charade or, or the whole ritual of watching a trial unfold. Not, you know, and, and Lincoln, you're exactly right, this is an extremely important trial. But as a person of color and a person who cares about racial justice, it's just one of those things where I can't, I can't watch people crying on the stand. I can't listen to what the defense is trying to say to defend Chauvin. I, I can't go through that, that ritual again, you know, I really can't. And so I, I will read about it, of course. Uh, I'm not optimistic that the right outcome is going to come about because also one of the things that we do know is that, you know, those who have been mobilizing against mass incarceration, you know, have really raised questions about punishment in general. Right. I mean, you know, looking at things like restorative justice and other things, which is not to say that Derek Chauvin should receive which should not be penalized for his crimes. He should. But even even that, if he is convicted, it, it doesn't feel like justice. Right. Uh, it, 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 you can't make it for the loss of, 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 of Floyd's life. And it and it's just really hard to kind of watch something like this unfold yet again. You know, I mean, throughout our life, lifetimes, we've seen this over and over again. And usually it doesn't have a good outcome, even when the outcome seems to be a conviction. You know, so that I mean, that's kind of my feeling about it right now.
0: Yeah, I'm not following the trial either. It's it's too much. It's on top of the pandemic to go through opening up the wounds of the countless times that individuals have suffered police brutality or worse have been killed by police. And it's just another incident and it's another one. And it's, it's difficult. It's and and there's enough. and I, I don't think the justice system is going to work in the way that it will allow for the healing of the trauma. That's the thing. Justice doesn't bring about healing. And that's what I think so many people, particularly people of color, Black, African-American, Latinos and others who have seen the justice system not work in a way that actually addresses the trauma, the pain and leads toward a path of healing.
2: I was struck by the defense's attempt to somehow justify what happened to George Floyd based on his history of drug addiction and what came to mind was judge welch's comments to joseph mccarthy in the the famed army mccarthy hearings in in the 50s that that broke mccarthy the let us not assassinate. I'm paraphrasing, but let us not assassinate this man any further. Have you no sense of decency? At long last, have you no sense of decency?
3: Yeah, I mean this resonates in, in so many ways, and you know, I mean, we'll we'll see how it unfolds. Uh, you know, I'm I'm uh, you know I've been dreading this moment uh, <laughs> to come. You know, uh, at this trial and it's here, and we're going to have to endure it somehow. Uh, and I think you know. Uh, You know, especially, I mean, when I see, when I I think of trials, the the trial, I always think about the O.J. Simpson trial the mid 90s, which completely changed the way trials are covered. Uh, And I mean, that's a completely different scenario altogether. But, you know, just the whole spectacle of trials on TV and being covered, you know, all of that just becomes really hard. It was really hard for me to deal with back in the 90s. And again, that's a different case. But the spectacular nature of the trial and the coverage, and the moment-to-moment coverage that you see on Twitter, you know, it's just, it's, its going to be unavoidable. But I'm—I'm I'm trying to, to modulate my my relationship to it
1: right now. The trial I think of, and I suppose you probably all guessed this, uh, is is the trial of Dan White, where Dan White, uh, had he just killed George Moscone, would have gotten a longer sentence. But he also killed Harvey Milk, who was gay, and very clearly he got a shorter sentence, and he, you know. Uh, was able to tell a story about what he did and why he did it that got him a lighter sentence, and the result was a riot in, in San Francisco, uh, known, as, known as the White Knight Riots, where people sm- you know flipped over police cars and lit them on fire and tore down you know telephone poles and smashed the doors of City Hall because they there was no justice, and you know then at the one that happens the right comes out and shakes their fingers at the people, but. The judicial system fails, and it fails over and over and over again for the same people. And 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 what we're seeing here with I think Frank raised, and Steve both raise important, very important points here. The story they're telling about George Floyd is to tell a story about urban African American people that 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 is fodder for their right wing base, even regardless of what happens in this particular trial.
2: It's a difficult topic and a somber topic to end on, but I actually think that's very appropriate both for this podcast and for this day as a whole, because opening day, as we said when we began, is a joyous occasion A people, a country will have its circuses. And I think it's fair to say that on the whole, we need our circuses, particularly after the long year plus that we've had dealing with this pandemic. But we should never forget. We should never let those circuses distract us so completely that we forget injustice, that we forget some of the ongoing issues, even for a moment, even for a moment that are going on in this country. I just want to say quickly that last week we had previewed having a guest this week, Our guest was delayed by unavoidable technical difficulties, and we will have him back in a couple of weeks. Next week, we will resume with the full panel, I believe, on a topic to be decided based on, of course, current baseball and world events, just as we have discussed today. As always, should you have a moment to spare, please go to the podcatcher of your choice and rate, review, and subscribe. It helps the show gain attention. Every positive review means more people see the show mentioned in their podcast listening listings, and we can bring you more of this kind of exciting discussion. And why do I sound like a PBS pledge drive? That is never good. I don't understand. I mean, seriously, PBS, we've got 200, 300 channels now, plus Netflix. You can't do this stuff anymore. There's got to be a better way, but until then, Stay safe, stay healthy, enjoy opening day. And on behalf of Frank, Lincoln, Adrian, and myself, we will catch you next week on Say It Ain't Contagious.
3: Life gets a lot more magical when you dream. So let's dream of a vacation unlike any other. A magical Disney cruise. (laughs) Hiya, pal! Where new stories meet tales as old as time. Enchanté, mon ami! And your family will be cared for the moment you step aboard. Sail from Florida to Disney's private island paradise and get ready for a dream come true with Disney
1: Cruise Line.